Well, hey, it's good, it's good to be here, be, good to be with you guys uh, who have made a big priority in your life to learn how to study the Bible. I mean, come on, you work a long, hard day, and you come down here uh, and spend an hour and a half to, uh, to, to, to study, you know, method, how to, how to study Scripture. And so I want to commend you for that, encourage you, applaud you uh, for that, and hopefully uh, help, you know, move you along in your, in your skills on, 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 on Bible study. Uh, and uh, boy, what, a, what, a, what an important skill to, to be able to study. And uh, I was, you know, I've been at this a long time, uh, studying seriously, you know, 40 years. Boy, there's still a lot of stuff I don't know. You know, I was reading the other day and I thought, why did I never see that before? You know, and, and, and I think one of the advantages of the method of learning to study Scripture uh, is the method you've been learning uh, all along. <clears throat> allows you to keep seeing more stuff, newer stuff, deeper stuff. Every time you go in, you will never, ever bottom out. You're never going to get there and say, once you have this method, you're never going to say, oh, well, I've, you know, I've seen, I've read that, I read that story before already, or I've seen the movie, worse, you know. Uh, but, uh, but, but these, these skills that you're picking up are going to help you, uh, you know, to be, to be, for the scriptures to be fresh. For me, there's two big reasons for Bible study methods. One, of course, is so that you get it right, so that you understand Scripture correctly and that you cannot be naive and can discern what's true and what's not true when you hear other people teaching or reading what they've written. That's, that's critical for the church uh, today, especially. Uh, but the other one is just, like I said, so it's, it's fun. You, know, you can see new stuff. It's, uh, it's an, it becomes an engaging uh, time. It's not a burden to read Scripture uh, if you're seeing new things and, and, and pulling new things out. That if it's fresh each time you go in, and I think having these good methods uh, really helps you to be able to do that. Uh, uh, tonight I want to deal with two topics. Uh, the, uh, there's, you know, Grasping God's Word. Our main book's got 22 chapters. I could pick any of those. Uh, you've covered several of those. Uh, what I'd like to do tonight is first uh, talk a little bit about uh, Gospels, how, we, how do you put the stories in the Gospels together. We'll do that first. Uh, and then we'll talk about uh, a problem area, uh, how, do you, how do you interpret the Old Testament law. seems to be a, an area that a lot of Christians are uh, uh, baffled about and, uh, and, and struggle with. So we'll, one's kind of a really fun area. You're familiar with Gospels, but hopefully this will help you. Uh, and, and how they fit together. Uh, and then the uh, second, uh, second topic that we'll cover is we'll look, at, uh, we'll look at the law. Okay? All right, so if you've got your handout, uh, then take the one that says how to read and interpret the Gospels. Get that one out. And then it says part two, connecting the stories, and that's because I'm not going to cover... Uh, preliminary stuff on how to study the Gospels. Uh, number one, you've had a lot of introductory material already on Bible study. And then, you know, introductions <clears throat> to how to study the Gospels. You know, it's, it's, it's biography, but it's not just biography. It's Christological biography. It's about Christ. It's their narrative, their stories. You know, all of that introductory stuff is in part one. Uh, <clears throat> and the skills that you use for reading narrative, you're asking who, what, when, why, where, what's the plot, what's the setting those kinds of things to make you aware of figures of speech, 
uh, parables, what's the nature of parables, all of that stuff's in, in part one uh, as far as what we would cover. What we want to focus on here is the, uh, is the idea of connecting the stories together. And we're asking questions. When you come to an episode in the gospel, you want to ask, uh, number one, what's the writer say in this episode, in this story? And this is, everybody does this. This is the typical question, of course, that you'd start with in studying the gospels. But then we want to ask another question. What is the writer trying to say by the way he has connected this episode with those before it and those after it? What is the writer trying to say by the way he arranges the stories uh, and arranges the episodes? I mean, sometimes, and that's, I think that's the real shortcoming most of us have in studying the Gospels, is we tend to pull an episode, whether it's a miracle story or a teaching story uh, or a confrontation story, <clears throat> we pull this episode out and kind of study it by itself, uh, and then and then apply it. Uh, but the Gospels are more complex than that. Uh, they're very uh, uh, complicated is not the word, but they're elaborate. Uh, there's a very elaborate uh, method of how the how the Gospels are connected. Uh, a lot of times, for instance, if Jesus does a miracle. Uh, story, then sometimes he's got a teaching episode right before it or right after it that's related to this, and these two are connected. Sometimes there's a whole series. If you're in Luke 18, we're not going to do that tonight, but in Luke 18, there's about six episodes right in a row that just all connect. You know, he tells a parable at the beginning about a tax collector. It's a hypothetical, and then four episodes later, Zacchaeus shows up. And here's a real guy, you know, he's a real tax collector. And he's picking back up on some of these same themes that he introduced at the beginning when he just told a parable about a tax collector. So these kinds of things, we're going to look at those kinds of things, work through with some samples uh, here the, uh, this evening and, uh, and kind of show you how that works. So uh, here's what I want to do. I want us to look at Mark 5, 21 to 43. We're going to spend our time this evening in the Gospels in Mark. So if you've got your Bibles... Let's look at uh, let's look at Mark five twenty one to forty three. Okay, These, this is a story. There's two stories actually, and I'm sure you're familiar with them. That uh, <clears throat> look at the story and starts in verse twenty one. Okay, and uh, Jesus and I'm not going to read it. I want you guys to read it, but I'm going to summarize the story. Okay, Jesus uh, is here. This man, Jairus, a church official, comes and, uh, and begs him, falls at his feet. You know, my, 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 my daughter is, is, is sick. Look at what he says, verse 23. My little daughter's dying. Please come, put your hands on her so that she'll be healed and live. Uh, and, of course, we're, he's, he's a synagogue leader, it tells us right at the beginning. You guys learned early uh, in your study here probably to look for repetition, world repetitions and things when you're doing observation. And they're going to call him synagogue leader several times, synagogue leader, synagogue leader, synagogue leader. And so, you know, did, does Jesus usually get along real good with the religious? I mean, no, normally he doesn't. So why, why is he here? Why would he come, you know, to ask Jesus? What, what drives him here, do you think? What? Why would he come if he probably, you know, he's probably been told by the people in Jerusalem, this guy's a heretic or whatever. So here he comes, he's asking Jesus, what drives him to Jesus? 
Yeah, he's desperate. Okay, he's just desperate. His little girl is dying. And, uh, you know, uh, Donna's here, so I have to be careful. My wife's over here, Donna. <laughs> you know, I suspect there's a wife behind this, you know, that said, <laughs> I heard this man can heal. He said, the man's a heretic, can't go. And his wife said, you know, my cousin Elizabeth told me that she saw so-and-so. You better go. And, you're, and so here he is, you know. Uh, so anyway, that's what I, it doesn't say that, of course, but that's, that's what I think happens. So anyway, so he comes, all right, and prays, I mean, asks Jesus, come and, and touch my daughter. So Jesus says, okay. So while they're going along, okay, then remember there's this woman who's been sick for a long time, sneaks through the crowd, touches him, you know, from behind, and then she's, she's healed. Okay, you guys remember the, the, the story. Jesus turns, talks to her, says, who touched me? The disciples are saying, are you crazy? Everybody touched you. So then he sees her, talks to her, tells her, your faith has saved you, uh, and then goes on his way. Meanwhile... What happens? The little girl dies, okay? And they come and say, don't bother the teacher. And Jesus says, uh, you know, just, just believe. And then he goes and then raises the little girl from the dead, okay? Uh, now, uh, as far as putting the stories together, in this one, they kind of force us to compare these two because they put one right in the middle of the other. Okay, so Mark is saying, I mean, he could have told us a story about Jairus' daughter, and then he could have said, oh, by the way, there's another story. There's this woman that came and touched Jesus. Uh, and, uh, but he didn't. He, he, he told it, like he's got it intentionally. It's wedged in the middle there, the way this is. And, of course, that's the way it happened, but I mean, he doesn't have to recount it that way. So they're kind of forcing us to, to, to look at these two. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to take about 10 minutes, <clears throat> okay, <clears throat> and I want you to read the stories again carefully, and I want you, you got a little place on your page here, I want you to write down either comparisons or strong contrast between them. What are things that show up that are the same, or what are the things that show up that are very different? Okay, I'll help you get started. Jairus is a man. The woman is a woman. How about that? Okay, we'll start simple, okay? Jairus, you got his name there. The woman do we have her name? Is it, it that strange? Okay, it's kind of strange. Uh, and uh, so start looking at those kinds of things. How do they approach Jesus? What does he do? What's the difference? What are the similarities? Any other odd things or unusual things? Okay, so take about 10 minutes. I know you're not done. I didn't give you quite 10 minutes, and you, it takes a while longer than that. But let's, uh, we got a lot. Uh, let's, uh, let's, let's share, some, share some things with what you saw, and I'll speak up, and then I'll repeat it so that they're, they're recording this, that they'll, that they'll pick it up. What, what were some things you saw, similarities or strong differences between, between the two? Just raise your hand or call it out. And, yes. Yeah, did you see that? Okay, the, the girl is 12 years old. The woman has been bleeding for 12 years. That's a, that's a gigantic coincidence, okay, to, to those two numbers, the two numbers that are there are both mentioned, okay? I think that's one of the things that got me going on this passage. I thought, come on, 12 can't just show up twice, so circle that and then start looking for some other things. All right, great, good. What else? Yes. Yeah, the, the public, he said, one is very public and one is very private. And uh, 
It's it. That's an interesting uh, observation and kind of plays out on several things. You know, if, uh, 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 of course, if you think about it, though, the woman, uh, her healing is private uh, at, at the beginning. I mean, when she comes, how does she ask him? She asks him. She doesn't, she asks so privately, she doesn't even say, okay? So he, he comes very publicly, Jairus comes very publicly, very dramatically, okay? So his approach to Jesus is very public, but the healing of his daughter is very private. Uh, it's done in private, and then Jesus also says, don't, don't get, don't, don't let, somebody leaked it because we got it here, okay? But anyway, but, but anyway uh, uh, so, but he says, don't tell anybody about it. Uh, but the woman comes privately, okay, so privately she doesn't even say anything, she doesn't even ask him, okay, and then her healing, he, he lets the whole village know, he stops and talks, you know, talks to her, she probably was embarrassed to death, uh, and so he singles her out, so anyway, so the healing, one is done privately, one is done publicly, the exact inverse of how, the, uh, of how they approached, okay, great, what else, yes, Right, right. The, the initial prayer, Jairus says, come and touch her. She's about to die. Uh, and, uh, and Jesus says, of course, it's, it's, it's uh, have, have faith in this. The woman feels like she needs to touch him, but what does she touch? Just this garment. I mean, so she's, uh, and I could ask you to speculate why, you know, why is that? Does she, does she think that maybe he won't notice, you know, if she touches or maybe, you know, I need to touch him, but... I'm, you know, I'm embarrassed. I mean, and we all, you know, what if, you know, what if he stops and asks, you know, what are you doing? Why do you want to heal I me? Mean, this whole thing may be embarrassing. Uh, and so, you know, but she just, so she, she, she does touch him, but she just touches his clothes. And then, of course, he knows instantly uh, what's happened. Okay. All right. Great. What else? Yes. Okay. Yeah, there's a, they're repeated. They both fall at, at Jesus' feet. Okay. When does Jairus fall at his feet? Beforehand, he comes and asks, okay, when does the woman fall at his feet? Afterwards, okay, after, you know, after she's been healed. So you do have this falling, but they're in different times, once before and one's, uh, and one's after. And, and related to that, then, then Jairus approaches Jesus from the front, okay, and falls down. The woman approaches Jesus in front of the back, okay, and asks, but then after she's healed, then she falls down. So both fall down. Okay, yeah, great. What else? Yes. Yeah, yeah. There's a huge contrast in the two, uh, and and as far as uh, wealth goes, and as far as uh, status in the community uh, goes, he's he, you know he's a synagogue official, so he's you know he's at the top status-wise in that in that village, uh, and the woman, and I think this is probably why Mark doesn't give us her name, is that uh, she's you know she's a nobody. They don't even tell us, you know, what, and so I think that heightens the contrast that she's a woman, she has spent all she had, uh, and uh, we mentioned at the beginning, too, that uh, what drove Jairus to come to Jesus was this hopeless desperation, and so with the woman, you see that as well. She's a nobody, but she's spent all she had, she's been sick for 
12 years. She does, I mean, so her, the situations are both hopeless and there's a certain stress uh, in the hopelessness. Uh, on that hopeless theme, Jairus starts out pretty hopeless and then it gets a little worse, okay? I mean, it goes from about to die to she has, I mean, she has died. As far as hopeless themes go, that's, that's, that's the end. That's the, you know, it's beyond hope, you know, when you're, when you're dead. Uh, and so it starts very hopeless. It drives him, but then it even gets, it even gets a little worse. Okay. All right, great. You guys have seen a lot of great things. What else? Yes. Yeah, yeah, the, the, the people around are clueless, okay? <laughs> I mean, you know, and there, and there are groups. And so you see the disciples, you know, asking him, and it's almost, it's a little, not, not hostility, but a little ridicule. What, what, what do you mean, so who touched you? I mean, what a dumb question. That's what they'd like to say. Uh, uh, but they know, they, you know, they've been with him long enough to not be, you know, to, to, to be careful. Uh, but, uh, but then they, they do openly ridicule him at the, at the little girl's house uh, uh, when he comes. So, yeah, in both cases, you've got crowds that, are, that don't get it and are certainly not on board and certainly not standing there thinking that he's going to pull these miracles off. Nobody is expecting that. The woman is the only one for her, and nobody expects the little girl. Uh, to be raised from the dead. So you have those those hostile crowds. Yeah, good, great. What else? You guys did a bunch. These are good. Yes. Yeah, and and the 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 the, the you know we're kind of stunned with him telling them. When the little girl is risen, don't tell anybody, okay? I mean, I'm a Baptist. We're telling our people all the time, go tell everybody about Jesus. I'm sure you guys get the same. You know, why on earth would you have a miracle and not, and not tell? I mean, it seems really strange that Jesus would say, don't tell anybody about this. Uh, but if you, if once you place that by itself, that's why I say the stories together make more sense and add a little more power. If you have that story by itself, it's very puzzling to wonder why does he tell them, don't go tell anybody? But once you have this woman in the story who's been healed, now what you realize is that he wants everybody to remember that. I mean, she becomes the focus. He doesn't, he see, and I'm speculating a little bit, but he seems to, uh, uh, he doesn't want her overshadowed, her faith, this great statement, of this great belief she's had overshadowed by the, uh, by the raising of the daughter from the dead, which miracle-wise would be a greater miracle, but faith-wise, she seems to be the one. I mean, I, I don't think the little girl is raised because Jairus believes. So I think he, I think he abandons hope. I think he's, you know, I think he's just numb. I think he's given up. So Jesus heals the little girl anyway, but the woman, she has this 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 wonderful faith, and so I, I suspect that's why he makes that public. And I think she's embarrassed to death. Uh, you know, he stops the whole crowd, and he, she tried to do this secretly, fat chance. You know, of doing this secret. Now he tells the whole village. Uh, and likewise, there's all kinds of things. You know, if she's had this problem and everybody knows about it or whatever, now he's officially pronouncing her 
clean. You know, maybe she's been uh, uh, banned from the synagogue because of this problem. I mean, there's other kinds of things that may be going on, and now he's announcing in front of everybody, making this her day and her. So that, you know, it, putting those two together helps us understand when he tells the others, don't tell anyone about this. Okay, all right, great. These are good. What else? You guys got all the best ones. These are good. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. the strong contrast between the young daughter and the purity of the daughter and the, and the woman who with a, in the, an Old Testament law with a bleeding problem for 12 years this, you know, have, would probably have uh, had her declared unclean. She probably couldn't go to the temple, probably even was not allowed in the synagogue. So that contrast is strong. Okay, yes. Yeah, yeah, and, and, and I think the, the reference of the synagogue, 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 the synagogue, and then the mention of her, and they don't, they don't the, the, Mark doesn't stress that, he doesn't bring that out, but I think there are subtle, in the contrast between the two, subtle differences you mentioned at the beginning, his status as synagogue official, and her status is probably a little bit of an outcast, not, and not even maybe able to go uh, because, of the, because of the situation, okay? Yeah, great, what else? couple of more. Yes, over here. Yeah, okay, yeah, did you hear what he said? Okay, the daughter shows up twice, okay. Uh, Jairus comes, you know, come and heal my daughter, and Jesus addresses her. But when that woman comes up behind him and touches him, okay, Jesus will also turn and address her as daughter. Uh, and so uh, the sermon I preach on this is called A Tale of Two Daughters. Uh, and uh, just because of that, and, and so what's happening? Why, well, how, how does that play out? Uh, he, you know, Jairus comes and grabs him and says, my daughter's about to die, and Jesus is hurrying along to help Jairus, his daughter. Along the way, Jesus runs into one of his kids. You know, this is his, this is his, his daughter. Uh, and so, he, you know, he stops and, and takes care of her and heals her. You know, she's healed I- I- immediately. And so you do see that his dialogue with her uh, as, uh, as someone that's his, you know, his, uh, his, his daughter, the, the, the daughter of faith there. Okay, yeah, great. What else? Yes, in the back. Yeah, he has he he has something to say in both in, in in both cases. With the daughter, it's very fascinating, and you don't you don't get this in English, but uh, uh, in Greek, he tells her, you know, your faith has has healed you. The Greek word is sozo. It's the same word for saved. That word can mean healed, or it can mean saved. And if you're a translator, what do you do with that? <laughs> because it's got these double connotations. That, and so those words have a little more power, you know, than even in an English translation. You're kind of hard to figure out. Sure, he has healed her, but it's, 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 more, it's more than that. Those words are, those words are bigger than that. Uh, let me ask you this. Which, which one was the most urgent? 
Yeah, the daughter, right? She's on the point of death. They tell us that at the beginning. She's on the point of death. You better go. You hurry, hurry, hurry. So we're, you know, he's hurrying along. Jairus is saying, go, 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 let's go. And along the way, this woman, he stops. He's having a conversation, you know. Come on, she's been sick 12 years. You can wait five more minutes, you know. <laughs> I mean, you know, can you can see Jairus, you know, how can you stop? Uh, and so you have this Jesus almost lollygagging around uh, uh, and, and heals her who is, who, who's, it's not urgent. It's not urgent. But, it, you know, it's, it, her faith, it's his daughter. He, so he stops and takes care. He doesn't respond to the most urgent one. And in the meantime, of course, it's, she dies. Okay, and so perhaps Jesus is, wants to make sure Jairus sees this as well. This is bigger, Jairus, than what you're, I'm bigger than what you think. Uh, and so in the meantime, so there is this reversal of, uh, of which one, which one goes, which one is healed first. Okay, there's a couple of more. You guys probably had some, but I want to, I want to put it, uh, one more, okay. Yeah, there's, yeah, and, and the word immediately shows up in both of them. It says, hey, she touched him immediately. She was healed. Jesus rose, raised the, the girl immediately. So in contrast to the urgency and how quick and he walks, there is not this, you know, it doesn't take time to heal either one. There's no potion that he spreads on him. It says, or drink this and go home and call back in two weeks or, you know, any of this kind of stuff that he does. Uh, this, it's instant in both, in both cases, okay? Now, so what happens then as we move from, looking and seeing to start to interpret the text. And we, now we want to ask what's happened. We see that we've got these two in contrast. Uh, and certainly, you see this woman of faith uh, in this miracle uh, as Jesus comes and sees his daughter. And so we can see the contrast in the two. And we see that, uh, you know, the, for Jairus, I think, who, who comes perhaps a little weak on faith, that, uh, that Jesus even takes him a little deeper and shows him a, a little more spectacular, uh, actually raising from the dead. And for him, you know, it, it, it started to get better. You know, he thought he was getting answered after prayer, and then the bottom fell out. And so he's kind of a roller coaster in the story. But then ultimately, he has this spectacular. The, the, the woman, though, is the heroine. I mean, she's really the one that, that comes out in the, in, the, in the story. Jairus, it never says he believes, really. It never really, he does, doesn't end up with Jairus praising God. I mean, we're missing a paragraph there where he should have fallen on his face and praised God. I mean, there, there should be something like that there. But there's not. Uh, and so the woman comes out as the, as the hero uh, uh, of the story and the center of the story, I think, that Jesus wants to see. And in contrast, even though he did this spectacular thing for Jairus, it's her that believed it was her it was her it was her faith this the nobody in the community you know the one who came quietly and just reached and touched this this is the one that was that was that was uh, saved and that's the one where the story tends to take its tend to take its focus okay all right so that's what i mean by putting two this one's easy okay they pushed one in the middle okay all right now uh but interestingly this is the third and fourth stories of a series of four Okay, so let's back up. Okay, look at the two in front of it. You can turn the page, all right, and look on the next page. There's actually a four-story unit here that starts back in chapter 4. Verse 35 of chapter 4 is where uh, Jesus has been teaching, remember? He said, let's go out. Uh, I got to tell you real quick, he calms the storm, okay? A story real quick. When my son 
JD was about three. He's in the bathtub down the hall. I'm in the living room. And I hear splash, 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 splash. And I thought, he is making a mess. He's in trouble. So I get up. I'm coming down the hall still. Splash, 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 splash. I thought, he's in big trouble. Right as I got to the door, I heard him say, waves be quiet, wind be still. <laughs> Dead silence in that bathtub. Okay. So you, 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 can, you can do this miracle in a bathtub. It works pretty good, but it's tough on a, on a storm, okay? So anyway, they go out on the, you know, they go out, and you know the story, okay? They're in the boat. Jesus is asleep. They go out on the, on the, on the lake. This terrible storm comes, uh, and they're all about to die. Uh, remember the... Uh, that hopeless theme, okay, that we saw both in the woman and in uh, the little girl who starts out hopeless and then dies. Uh, and so this hopeless theme, these are fishermen. They've been on this lake all their lives, probably Peter's boat, okay? Uh, and, uh, and yet they say we're perishing, we're drowning, the boat's breaking up. Uh, and so you have this hopeless situation. Jesus stands up and calms the, calms the storm uh, and then, uh, you know, asks them, why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? Verse 40, of course, now they're not scared of the storm, they're scared of him. Uh, they were terrified and asked each other, who is this? Okay. Uh, even the wind and the waves obey him. Uh, and then the next story is he lands, okay, and who's he meet? There's this demon-possessed guy, okay? They land in a graveyard, you know. You know, they've been, they almost drowned out there, and now the boat comes ashore, it hits the shore. You don't see anything of the disciples racing ashore. You know, if you, look, if you read carefully, it never says they got out of the boat. Uh, I, I think they probably did, but you can see them in the early light coming ashore, and Peter and those guys saying, you know where we are. <laughs> this is, I mean, they know where the graveyards are on the other side of the, uh, and they know there's a crazy guy here. Uh, and this crazy demon-possessed guy comes running down, screaming at Jesus like he's expecting him uh, and calling out to him. Verse 7, what do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high in God's name? Don't torture me. Jesus had been saying, come out of this man, you impure spirit. Jesus asked his name. Verse 9, the man says his name is Legion. Uh, a Roman legion had 6,000 soldiers if it's, if it's fully staffed. Uh, so it's a, it stands for a large, large number of individuals. And then begs him to leave. Uh, Jesus sees a large herd of pigs. You're wondering what the pigs are doing here anyway, although on that side of the Sea of Galilee, there are some Gentiles that lived in that area, uh, and they beg him, send us into the pigs. And so Jesus says, okay, and uh, sends them into the pigs, 2,000 of them go down and are drowned in, in the water. Uh, then the man is okay, and he's healed, he's in his right mind, they go out and tell the town. Now, if we got, there's, there's four stories in a row. Jesus calms a storm, okay? Jesus casts the demons out of this demon-possessed man. Then he's, got Jair, then he's got the woman that he heals. And then he has uh, the, the daughter that he raises from the dead. Now, if the, 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 and it's a unit. You can tell at the beginning. I mean, uh, uh, the, there's some teaching before and there's some teaching afterwards. And so these things happen, seem to happen in 24 hours. Seems to go pretty quickly. Uh, quite a day for these disciples, okay, if you look at it. Uh, but in that context, if the second two are connected, I'm suspicious about the first two, okay? Uh, and now while they, you, you don't have all of this tight connection like you did with Jairus and the woman, 
Still, nonetheless, it's very, um, uh, it, it, he's, he's on the lake, the storm comes. Who sends that storm? Uh, is this a natural storm? I think that's unlikely. Did, uh, did God send that storm to somehow test the disciples? I, I can't see that as well. And, and he just happens to land. There happens to be a gazillion demons in this guy waiting for him, expecting him. Of all the places they could have landed on that side of the shore, Jesus lands right there. And these demons come down immediately, and he's worried and nervous that they've come. Uh, you have this picture in the Old Testament of hostility against God, the storms you roar and rage against the Lord. You see this in, in, in Psalms. And, so, and when Jesus talks to the storm... He talks to it like it's somebody, okay? Be quiet, he says. Shut up is a good, uh, good vernacular translation. Be muzzled. It's the same exact term that he uses back in chapter 1 when he first cast out his first demon. So the words that he used to the storm are exactly the words he uses when you get a model of Jesus' ministry in chapter 1 when he cast the demon out. So uh, I think the demon sent the storm. Okay, uh, and so here you have this contrast, and and it once those are connected, once you make that supposition, it changes that in the boat story. Okay, I mean it's a great story. Jesus can help you with your troubles and storms of life. Okay, that's fine. You can take the story by itself. It's a good story. Everybody gets that. We can get good meaning. It's true. It's absolutely true. Jesus will help you in the storms of life. But when you add those demons in there, you have another aspect. They didn't know the half of it, right? They're in big trouble, and they don't even get what the trouble is. It's worse than they think. Uh, and there's a spiritual aspect to what's happening that only Jesus can deal with. Uh, and so you add that other dimension. Yes, he, is, he, does, he does have his authority over the, over, over the storm and over the nature, but then there's this, there's this demonic aspect. And, of course, the story then, if you think about it, uh, if, uh, uh, if the demons are trying to kill the disciples... Uh, by drowning them, who ends up in the water? Yeah, the demons. I mean, and that's a great little... I have a friend of mine that says this is... The, I'm from Arkansas. First episode of suicide. Okay, so, yeah, I know it's bad, but that's, anyway. I have, to, I have to wake you up somehow. But, but, uh, so, but there, there is this interesting deal. If the demons are trying to kill the disciples and trying to kill Jesus, then you have this... You know, why do the, why do the pigs go into the water and get drowned? Well, it's a nice little fitting, you know, poetic justice. Throw those pigs down in, the spirits down. I don't know what happens to spirits in the water, so don't ask. But, but, you know, down in the water. And then, you know, interestingly, a few chapters later, okay, what will happen? Jesus is walking out on the water, okay? He's rubbing their noses in it then, you know, just trying to kill me with a storm stuff when he just casually walks out on the water to demonstrate. So it also, you know, repercussions down to some of these others. So if we have that now, if we back up, and if you're looking at your chart, okay, uh, and again, I don't have time to send you home, do your homework, come back, fill out the chart, and there's several other categories. But if you look at your chart, we've got these four stories. Uh, the first story, you know, name of the story, Jesus calms the storm. Second story, Jesus cast out the, you know, the legion of demons. And then the bleeding woman, and then, I wish we had a better name for the story, but that, the bleeding woman, and then Jairus' daughter. Okay, and then who is there? Uh, and you guys picked up on that some, uh, but you really see the disciples are the only guys that are here uh, for all four of these. And then the final one, it's really just his closest, uh, James and John and Peter, you know, it's, it's his closest ones. Uh, so the disciples are there. 
Uh, and look, look at the lead-in. Look at what it says right before the story starts, the end of our teaching stuff, end of these parables. And four, look at 434. 33, with many similar parables, Jesus spoke the truth to them as much as they could understand. That's the crowd. Verse 34, he did not say anything to them without using a parable, but when he was alone with his own disciples, he explained everything. Bingo, storm, demoniac, (laughs) bleeding woman, a dead girl. Okay, so that's, that's his explanation. Uh, as far as telling them, teaching them those kinds of things. So that last uh, little less, the last statement there leads us into these connecting stories. So anyway, we got the four stories. Who were there? The disciples. And then the hopelessness. You see, in each case, there's a stress of hopelessness. Uh, with the storm coming, the boat was filling with water, was about to break up. These guys are fishermen. It's not like me and you that I never go out on a boat. You know, if we're out there, you know, we say it's drowning. It's different. These guys, it's, these are fishermen. Uh, the boat's about to break up. It's stressed. The waves are beating against it. The demoniac. What does it say about the demoniac? His hopelessness. What did, we didn't have time to read it, but what, what, what does the text say? Do you remember? What? Yeah, he lives in the tombs. Okay, he'd been driven out of the city. They had, people had tried to bind him even with chains and had been unable. So the whole community have driven him out. They tried to constrain him. Total useless hopelessness in them trying. So there's this hopelessness stressed with him, hopelessness stressed with the woman, 12 years, hopelessness stressed with the girl at the point of death and then actually dies. So you have this hopeless, 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 hopeless. So what's coming through here then is Jesus can rescue us from hopeless situations. Uh, regardless, and you, you could even back up and say, what do you think it is the first century fisherman's afraid of? The storms on a lake, the demon possession, there seemed to be a lot of it. Sickness, especially with your kids, uh, death itself. And so he's showing these guys at the beginning, I've got power over these things that, that frighten you, regardless of how hopeless the situation is. And then there also is an issue of authority in each of these. Jesus shows us authority over nature, shows us authority over the spirit world, shows us authority over sickness, shows us authority over death. So who are you afraid of? That's kind of what he's, what he's asking at the end. Where's, where's, where's your faith? Uh, and it's those four stories that go together. Okay, all right, so that's what I mean. Okay, that's what we're saying as far as on doing Gospels, that uh, we want to connect them, uh, move the stories together. You don't want to overread and see, imagine things, but you have to think a little bit creatively. Uh, and you can rule out some things, but take your stories, take what they say, if there's a teaching and there's a miracle, try and look for boundaries and try to see how do these stories fit together and then ask, do these things inform each other and start dealing with a couple of chapters at a time and not just one little episode at a time. And I think you'll see a lot of fun stuff like this, especially in Mark, uh, but there's uh, big chunks of Luke that are connected that way as well. Uh, okay, any qu- questions, okay, on what we did or this approach with Gospels uh, before we move on to the next Topic. There's a lot of other fun text in Mark. Uh, uh, in those first uh, chapter two and three, Jesus has an encounter with the Pharisees. There's five questions there. The Pharisees ask him four questions. Jesus asks them the fifth one. Three, six, they plot to kill him. At the end of Mark, we're in chapter 10 and 11. He's in the temple. The Pharisees come. You have five questions again. The Pharisees ask him four. Jesus asks the fifth, and then they kill him. 
Uh, and so you've got Mark opening and closing with these same you know, parallel, parallel type things. And so uh, the way you notice that is you say, oh, this is a question and answer, question and answer, question and answer. I got five of them. Uh, and then later on, you're reading at the end of Mark, you say, well, there's more questions than answers. Questions. Oh, I got five. I remember that five somewhere else. You know, <laughs> you thumb back and you find it's fives in the earlier part. So, again, it's a very elaborately constructed uh, gospel, is the way that they're set up with, uh, with how these things are. Uh, yeah, questions, sir? Oh, yeah, he says, another theme coming out other than hopelessness. And absolutely, there's a lot. I mean, we could, we could spend a lot of time. But he said, another very important theme, and I would agree with you, it's at least equal to the hopelessness theme, is that the, uh, especially the contrast, anyone can come to Jesus. That you have, if you look at who gets saved, the woman and the demon-possessed guy, okay? Uh, and so two, you know, outcast folks that had been driven out of the community, actually. And so there's both of those two are also, you can compare them as well. So absolutely, that's another big thing. The, uh, uh, the, uh, the, the ones, the outcast nature, the ones who get, who get delivered. Yes. Pardon? Oh, his, he was making a comment, you know, when I'd said hopelessness is a major theme. He was just commenting another major theme is this, uh, the, that everyone that can come to Jesus, even the outcast, the kind of people who get saved. Is, is that not another one of the central themes? And I would say, yeah, absolutely, especially when you put stories two and three together. You know, that becomes, the, you know, the person who gets saved in each one, the demon-possessed man, the woman, those are, the, those are people outcast. Uh, uh, the story kind of stresses that as well. Uh, yeah, good. Questions? Other? Anyone else? Okay, all right, so now when you read the Gospels, all right, start looking, okay, uh, for these things and ask how those fit together. All right, let's go to the next topic, okay? We're shifting gears quite a bit. We're going to jump back into the Old Testament. Uh, and I gave you, your handouts are longer, okay, because uh, you, can, you, can, you don't have to write so much. You can think about it and go back and, and read it. And we're not going to be looking at text so much. This is more of me just kind of explaining uh, how, uh, how to do. Uh, one of the things, the, the, the Old Testament, of course, is in general, is, uh, is more complicated than, than the New Testament because there's what we explain, if you've, and if you've got the journey into God's Word, uh, as an analogy, what Duval and I tried to come up with is we compare the interpretive process to a journey, interpretive journey, and we give you five steps uh, in the journey. I, uh, the, the, the journey into God's Word may have four, but there's, we've added a fifth one. Uh, but uh, step, step one is, is uh, grasp the text in their town, understand it in their situation. What did it mean to them? Uh, and that helps us interpret whether you're in the Old or New Testament. You know, the text cannot mean now what it never meant. Uh, and so we start with this. What did it mean for them, step one? Uh, step two is very important when you're in the Old Testament. Step two is we say, recognize there's a river of differences between us and them. You cannot just take a text spoken to an Old Testament believer and apply that straight to us, Okay. You get into all kinds of theological problems. Uh, uh, there's a river of differences here, differences of time, 
culture, uh, situation, historical situation, and covenant. You know, we are not under the law. We are under the new covenant of Jesus Christ. So we have to be aware of that, that there's some huge changes from the Old Testament to the New Testament in terms of how we relate to God. How do, we, how do we experience the presence of God? How do we have forgiveness of sins? There's a lot of things that change. And so we have to recognize that there's this big wide river. If you ignore it and you just take an Old Testament text and try to apply it directly straight, you know, to us, then sometimes you step into the water and river and you just get washed up downstream. Or you end up with some very bad theology, you know, how blessed are the ones who dash the heads of your little ones against their, you know, that's in Psalms. So you just, you know, you can't interpret that like you're reading Paul. Uh, and so we have to be aware of the differences, okay? So step, step three, then what do you do? You're looking for some principles, principles, universal principles that are behind the Old Testament text, why can God say this, okay? What is it about God, the character of God, the nature of God, that he can say this to the Old Testament person? And the, 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 while the specifics of what's said in the Old Testament might not carry across to us, the principles behind it are usually universal they're because, because they're rooted in the character of God. And so we can take those principles then, cross what we call this principalizing bridge, and bring with the principle now across this river of differences. When we get to the other side, step four, see what the New Testament has to say. Uh, how does the New Testament qualify? Do they tighten it? Do they loosen it? What do they say uh, about that uh, when you get to the New Testament? And then step five, apply it. Uh, and w- when we draw the map, we have the application with several different roads. There's lots of different ways to apply the text there's not lots of different meanings. We would argue there's one, perhaps two. It's a very narrow range of meaning of a text, but then you will imply it, that meaning in a lot of different ways. So there's a lot of differences, ways of applying. So that's our interpretive journey, okay? When you approach the Old Testament, that's our general approach, especially with the Old Testament. You've got to be careful with this river of differences. So when you come to the law and to the legal material, uh, and, uh, and, you know, uh, w- without the journey, a lot of believers uh, are, uh, you know, they're interested in the text. They want to study the Bible. But, you know, some of the Old Testament law is kind of strange. And, 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 a, and a lot of us will read along, you know, uh, we call this the willy-nilly approach. Uh, you just kind of read, say, this is strange. This is really weird. I didn't know that's... Wow, sacrifices. Uh, oh, wow. This one, you get your pencil, you know, and here's your verse. This is your life-guiding verse for the, for the week, you know. And then, oh, no, that's weird. That's strange. I don't have any idea. More, oh, genealogies. Let's go over. Oh, gee, more sacrifice. Oh, wow. Here's, you know, and then you underline. I mean, okay. Now, I understand what you're trying to do, okay? You're trying to, you know, looking for something. When it looks like it applies to you directly, then you grab it. And everything else, you say, oh, I don't know, we kind of go over it. So that's, that's, that's probably the most common, okay, approach uh, out there. Uh, and so obviously there's something that we can do that's better. Uh, so let's talk about it. Old Testament law. Uh, most of the Pentateuch, those first five books, much of it's 600 commandments uh, in the law. And there, there are some weird ones, right? You know, don't cook a young goat in its mother's milk. That's just, that's bizarre. Uh, don't wear clothing woven of two kinds of material. I just, I'm not sure. I don't think this is 100% cotton, okay? A few of you are okay. You got 100% cotton, but a lot of you got blends, okay? So you are violating Leviticus 19. Uh, Leviticus 30, 40, some of you guys like this one. A man who has lost his hair and is bald is clean. 
Okay? Does that mean the rest of us are not? Okay? How many of you look around the room and say, hey, well, clean, but the rest of you guys are... Uh, so... That's kind of weird. Uh, a lot of them we violate regularly. A woman must not wear men's clothing, nor a man wear woman's clothing. Okay, we're not wearing dresses, but you girls, a lot of you are in pants, so you're breaking Deuteronomy. How about this one? <laughs> Stand up in the presence of the aged. You know, nobody, you know, that's rare. Rarely enforced, uh, and that's fine with me. You don't have to stand up, you know, when I come. Uh, this telling me you think I'm aged, okay? Uh, but uh, Leviticus 19, don't put tattoo marks, okay? Boy, tattoos are in vogue, all right? And uh, there's lots. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, okay? Or, but uh, And then 14, Deuteronomy 14, you know, don't eat pigs, you know? Come on, we're no baconators, you know? Uh, we, you know so there are a lot of these, you know, we regularly, some of them are weird, we don't know what to do with them. Some of them, we just, we break them with some regularity uh, and uh, with gusto as far as the bacon goes. Uh, And then, but some of them, look, they're foundational for faith and for our life. You know, love your neighbor as yourself. Uh, And, uh, uh, you know, that's that's, that's, that's the the second greatest commandment, you know. And so it's it's a huge one for us. Uh, These ten commandments, thou shalt not murder, you shalt not commit adultery. These, you know, these are the underpinnings of, 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 of culture and of uh, civilized behavior and what we think, uh, you know, how people ought to live. These are basic. So, so anyway, so the question then, why do we adhere to some? Why do we ignore some? And what's our approach? Should we just ignore it or should we, as I showed you earlier, just embrace this willy-nilly and just kind of scan through? Uh, now, what Christians have done in the past is what we call this next one, the traditional approach. Uh, and this has, has worked okay. And... Uh, uh, and here's how it works, okay? Now, I don't agree with it. I'm going to get to that. But I want to explain to you how it works first, okay? And uh, so typically, and this is, this is probably still the most common uh, approach to Old Testament law among evangelicals who are taking it seriously uh, here. And so I'm trying to change that. But this is, this is common. So I understand. I recognize that. Well, what they'll do is try to break the laws up into three categories, either moral law, civil laws, or ceremonial laws. And they will say if it's a moral law, that's one that are, deals with timeless truths and uh, human behavior, times, like love your neighbor as yourself. It's a moral law. Civil law deals with courts and you know, land and, 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 and stuff like this, uh, uh, punishment for crimes and things. So they would say then that's some of the laws are civil. And then some of them are ceremonial laws about sacrifices and festivals and things like that. So once you've... Uh, made the categorization into those three, then what this approach would say is that the moral laws still apply, but the civil and ceremonial laws don't. So in that sense, you categorize them. If it's a moral law, then you still take it. It applies to us. If it's a civil law, it doesn't apply to us. If it's a ceremonial law, it doesn't apply to us. So that's how the, that's how the approach works. Uh, okay? uh, and those, those, those civil ceremonial only applied to ancient Israel, but they don't apply to us. Okay? All right. Now, I got some problems with that. Okay? Number one, uh, the distinctions are just arbitrary. Uh, it's really hard to see any kind of change like that in the, in the text. Uh, if you look at the one, love your neighbor as yourself, Leviticus 19.18, the very next verse, don't wear clothing woven of two kinds of material. Okay, it's 
So my shirt violation and love your neighbor as yourself are right next to each other. There's no indication that, hey, we're changing from one type of law to the other. Uh, it's not there at all. So the distinctions to me are very arbitrary, uh, and there's no indication, no indication that there's something changing when you come to the text from one type of verse to the other. Uh, and the other is that it's just difficult to determine which category a law falls into. The Old Testament law, all of it is theological. I mean, God is coming to live in their midst. I mean, that's why they have it. God enters into covenant with them in Exodus 19.20 on Mount Sinai. And he says, I'm going to come and dwell right in your midst. They build in that tabernacle. He lives right down a street from them. Everything in their life changes when he comes to live with them like that. Uh, and so he gives all of these laws as to, to get drilled into their head the concepts of, of separation and holiness because God's living right down the street from them. So all of the laws have some kind of theological basis to it. They're not just arbitrary types of things. And so if they're all theological, to me it's hard to say which of those theological laws are moral and universal and which ones are not. So I have trouble with, uh, uh, with taking that kind of, you know, what do you do with planting your fields with two kinds of seeds or woven kinds of material? You can dismiss that and say it's not moral, but I would say, boy, God is trying to teach them about separation because he lives down the street. He can't have sin in his presence. And so he's, he's driving these kinds of things home. So I would say it's hard. Uh, and then what do you do with Numbers 5? You know, if a woman's caught with adultery, they have her eat some dust off the floor of the tabernacle. And if she gets sick and she's guilty and they stone her, and you can't, isn't this a moral issue? <laughs> adultery? Uh, so, or what, you know, I don't see any of us doing that. Uh, and so clearly that's, there's something, it's hard to, dis, some of those, it's hard to say what category do they fall. I think, I think the whole categorization thing breaks down if you start pushing hard on it. The other thing is that I also question the idea that we're only accepting that one category. The moral laws apply to us and the others don't. And I would say, well, I think it's all scripture is profitable, you know, and uh, uh, for teaching, correction, reproof. And so I, I would say, well, I, I'm uncomfortable with dismissing the others uh, as well. Uh, so what does that leave us with? Okay, here's how we propose to, to, to interpret the law. Number one, uh, put it in its context. Okay, step one, what did it mean for them? Uh, and to realize that the Old Testament law doesn't just drop out of heaven and sit off to the side. It comes in the middle of a story. God saves his people out of Egypt. He brings them to Mount Sinai, enters into covenant, gives them a big chunk of the law. Takes them to the promised land. They refuse it, remember? Book of Numbers, they roam around for a while. Comes back, Deuteronomy, gives them the law again right before they go into promised land. So the law comes in context. Leviticus comes because God is going to dwell in that tabernacle right down the street. All of their life changes in regard to holiness and sacrifice. And so it's got this narrative context that the laws come in those contexts. So we want to recognize that, okay? Uh, the Old Testament law is firmly embedded into Israel's history, and we want to interpret it that way. It's part of there's a story that runs from Genesis 12 to 2 Kings 25, and the law is part, is part of that. And it's not presented by itself as some time of universal, timeless code. The law comes... Uh, uh, in, in the context of God says, these are the terms by which 
you can live in the promised land and be blessed. So it comes in this historical historical setting, okay? Ten Commandments are a little different because they do kind of come in a different setting. They are kind of set aside a little bit, but the rest of the law uh, comes in this, uh, in this context. Uh, and, uh, and it's tightly, it's firmly embedded into the Exodus, the wandering, and the conquest. And again, Deuteronomy, these are the terms for living in the promised land and be blessed. If you guys do this, you'll be blessed. If you don't do this, I'm going to kick you out of the land. So God tells them that in Deuteronomy 28. Uh, okay, so now, then there's this important covenant context. The law also comes in, in the covenant. Uh, and uh, the Mosaic covenant, the law is part of it. It is the terms. It forms that Mosaic covenant. And the covenant's very closely associated with the conquest of the land. Uh, and in Deuteronomy, the word land shows up 197 times, okay? Now, the blessings from the Mosaic Covenant are conditional. It's very clear, Deuteronomy 28. If you keep this, you'll be blessed. If you don't, you'll be cursed, and you'll get kicked out of the promised land. So there's this huge, gigantic conditionality uh, to the law, okay, uh, that comes with the Old Testament. And number three, but the Mosaic Covenant's no longer a functional covenant, and the New Testament's very clear on this, okay? I mean, that's the point of Hebrews 8 and 9, that this old covenant is gone. It's no longer functional. And so if, if, if the covenant, if the old covenant is no longer functional, then the terms of those covenant, the law that are the terms of the covenant, is no longer functional as terms of the covenant for us, Okay? It's no, since the covenant is no longer functional, the laws that comprise the covenant are no longer functional over us as law. Still scripture. Still scripture. Still God's word. Uh, And it still functions in the same way that narrative functions. We still have all this narrative in Genesis and, uh, and we, you know, in, in Joshua, Judges, Ruth, first, second. All of that narrative functions as scripture. And I'm suggesting the law works very similar to that and should be interpreted very similar to that. Okay? Uh, all right. Now, Christians are not under the Old Testament law. This is one of the big mistakes uh, that we can make when we're interpreting the law is to go back under the law. Paul goes to great lengths, okay, to root that idea out of these early churches, especially there in Galatians. Uh, and so Paul, you know, makes this huge statement, Galatians 2, you know, we know a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith. Romans 7, you also died to the law through the body of Christ. Galatians 3, the law was our guardian until Christ came. Uh, and so Paul, you know, he, he, he goes bonkers when the Galatians start going back to the law. He says, no, 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 no. Now, but Paul respects the law, okay? Paul treats it as scripture. He quotes from Deuteronomy. I mean, he uses it. So it's, it's very definitely scripture to him, but it's not, it's not law. It's not the terms of the covenant. And so he's made this huge shift from treating it as law to treating it as scripture. Uh, but then, of course, objections. What about, what about Matthew 5.17, where Jesus says... Uh, do not think that I've come to abolish the law. The prophets have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So some people would say, well, no, clear here, Jesus is not sweeping away the law. But notice a couple of things. Number one, when he says law and the prophets, he, that, that's the whole Old Testament. I mean, they use those two to include the whole, the whole thing. So he's not just singling out the law in what he says. And then he doesn't say, I haven't come to abolish them, but to keep them. He says, I haven't come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. 
And what Jesus is saying about the law is that the righteous demands of the law, the law that said Israel needed to be righteous to, uh, uh, to really enjoy all these wonderful blessings of God and dwell in the promised land, Jesus will do that. That Jesus will be the righteous life. He will be the one who fulfills all of these righteous demands of the law. So he's not saying that you still have to keep the law. He is saying that that uh, we're not sweeping away those righteous demands of the law. He's saying, I'm fulfilling the righteous demands of the law and, and, and as the ultimate sacrifice. Uh, so, uh, so Jesus is, uh, in this sense, then when he says fulfill, he means to bring it to its intended meaning, that Jesus is the answer, the ultimate answer to the law and its intended meaning, all that it's supposed to do and all that it's supposed to accomplish and all that it's supposed to teach he comes and fulfills all of that. It's what Jesus is saying. He's not telling them, you guys have to still get out there and sacrifice sheep. Okay, he's changing all of that uh, with, this, with this statement. And Jesus also is the final interpreter. And if you read on in the, in the, in the Sermon on the Mount there, Matthew 5, 6, 7, 8, uh, he's continually uh, tweaking the law. He, some of it, he t- tightens it up. Some of it, he reinterprets it. Some of it, uh, some of it uh, like the, the Sabbath, he radically challenges uh, and uh, and so uh, he then is claiming that he is the final interpreter of the law, and that's through him that we have to see that we have to see the law. So I would say then that we want to interpret the law through the grid of the New Testament teaching. It's all Scripture. We don't want to chunk any of it. It's all got relevance for us, uh, but it's no longer law. Okay, so the law no longer functions as the terms of the covenant no longer applies as direct law for us, but still scripture. And so, like narrative, it contains these principles and lessons that are just as binding on us as the New Testament, okay? The principles, the lessons, the realities about God that it teaches to us, the character of God. And the law teaches us things about the holiness of God that, that, that is, is not that clear anywhere else in Scripture. Uh, and so we have these lessons and all of this teaching uh, that we want to take that's still very relevant when we, when we run it through the New Testament, okay? Now, so how does this work? Go back to our interpretive journey, okay? And I've got the steps of it listed out here. In general, uh, step one, grasp the text. Say we're, we're, we've got a law. We're looking at one of the laws. Uh, grasp the text in their town. What did the text mean to the biblical audience? So here with the law, we're studying it like we would narrative. What's going on? Where are they in their wandering journey? What is it that God's trying to accomplish with this law? Do we have any idea why we have the law here? Is it a polemic against the Canaanites? Has it got something to do with holiness since God is moving in that tent right down the street? Okay, uh, Is it something to do with separation because he's close right there in their, uh, in their presence. Uh, and so uh, how did it relate to the covenant? You know, or is, it a, is, it a, is, it a, is it about land? Uh, is it about agriculture? Is it about the tabernacle? What does the law relate to? So we want to try to determine that and grasp step one. What, is it, what does it mean to them? Then uh, step two, you know, measure the width of the river. And again here, we're not under the old covenant. That's the big one. But usually there's some other things as well. We are not Israel, you know. We're not getting ready to go into the promised land. We don't have high priests, you know. We don't have God living in the tabernacle, okay. God lives 
here, you know, the Holy Spirit's within each of us. It's a gigantic difference, okay, uh, with how do we experience the presence of God. Very different for us than from, than from them uh, as well. And we're not under a theocracy, so all of this government stuff uh, doesn't apply directly. Then the principalizing bridge. What is the, what is the principle behind the text? And things like the separation uh, uh, what, do you, what do you come up with verses like that that say don't mix two times of cloth together? I think God is just trying to hammer into their heads on a daily basis. Everything in your life is going to remind you that I live right down the street and I am holy. And if I'm holy, you've got to be holy. And living in my presence, you need to be aware. Never, ever forget the idea that unclean things cannot come in the presence of God and into the holy, into the holy area. And so all of your life needs to be structured along these lines. And so it was this constant review, plant and seed, keep them separate. Are you weaving cloth? Keep it separate. And all of these, there's all of these issues of separation. Uh, and so when we, when we come across with principles, then these are principles of holiness and that sin, uh, sin makes us unclean, you know, and sin separates us from God. And so we, we come across with this need for holiness. And then, of course, you come into step four into the New Testament. Well, Jesus Christ is the answer for that. He is the one who makes us clean. And so our whole concept of cleansing and unclean and holy and how you're made holy is clarified in the New Testament with how, we are, how we're now made clean. But the need for that is stressed in Leviticus. We see that and we can come with all of these Levitical laws and see the need for holiness, the understanding of God is holy. So that's the kind of principles that we pull out of each of those, of each of those texts. Consult the biblical map, again, to see what, where is, uh, 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 what is the New Testament saying about it? Does the New Testament uh, strengthen it? Does the New Testament not uh, strengthen it? How does, how does the New Testament handle that? Do they abrogate that law or do they restate it? A lot of the laws are restated uh, when you get into the New Testament. And then, of course, apply it. You know, let's, let's, let's sink in. Let it sink in where it actually changes our life. Now, back to the Ten Commandments. If you take some of the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not kill. Okay, well, what's the point behind that? Well, God doesn't want his people killing each other, okay? Because life is sacred. Life is holy. That's the principle. So you come across the bridge. What does it mean? What's the principle? Well, don't kill. Okay. I mean, you end up with almost the same thing, thou shalt not kill, and, and restated in the New Testament as well. Uh, in fact, Jesus says, and don't say bad things either, or think bad things either. I mean, he, 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 he tightens that up with motive and intention. Uh, and so m- most of the Ten Commandments are already stated in a universal principle kind of form, and they come across very much the same way in a universal principle. The only one that doesn't is really the Sabbath. When it comes across, you know, uh, the, 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 as you bring that Sabbath to have a special time, special day, the principle of a special time and special day comes across, but it loses its specificity. And the New Testament's pretty clear. I mean, they change the days. They, they, Jesus has this confrontation with how the Sabbath is to be done. So you really see the Sabbath playing out quite a bit differently uh, in the New Testament. With their, so the principle is still there of having a special time uh, uh, set aside and, 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 and the holiness of it, but the specificity of it as far as it's the actual seventh day of the week, you know, with Sunday's not that. Sunday's the first day of the week. And so, we've, you know, we violate that one with some regularity unless you're Seventh-day Adventist. 
Uh, but that one comes across, it is quite a bit changed, and we, we still live with the principle of it and not the specificness of the law. Uh, so that's how I would see the law. And you can do this, uh, it's not always easy, uh, but you can do this with any of these. You know, you've got laws in Deuteronomy. On the top of your roof, you know, build a little parapet around so people don't fall off. Okay, well, that's a good, easy, nice, practical deal. And you get a principle, what's the principle? You're, 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 you got to be concerned for your neighbors. You're responsible for your neighbors, okay? You know, if you got a swimming pool, put a fence around it. I mean, it's that kind of, uh, kind of, but you can spread that principle that you are responsible for your stuff hurting your neighbors. You can come across with that uh, care for your neighbors and apply it in a whole range of, whole range of stuff. So, you know, none of us, I won't say none of us, but few of you have a house with a parapet on the top, okay, where you have to, you know, where that applies to you specifically. But I would say principle-wise, it applies in a whole bunch of areas. And so uh, the, uh, the call for sacrifice, all the sacrifices, you know, this idea that sin brings death and has to be appeased with a, with, a, with a death. There has to be an atonement death for this. You know, it's behind all those sacrifices. You come into the New Testament and they, they explain this to us. Jesus explains this. The Gospel of John, you know, behold the Lamb of God. The, John the Baptist says when Jesus walks up. So we have that explanation. So we're still able to read that, apply those laws about the sacrifice. We still can apply that. How do we do that? We say here's the principle. We grasp that principle. We see it fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Uh, and apply that. We're not sweeping it away. The holiness of God has not changed. The demand for righteousness has not changed. The demand for holiness has not changed. None of that has changed. But Jesus now is the ultimate fulfillment of that. So that allows us to carry the law all the way across. Okay. All right. So that's a little more controversial, not near as easy as the Gospels. Okay. Uh, but uh, we got a few minutes. Where's Nathan? He wants to you. Okay. Yeah. Question or two. On the law, yeah. And if I don't know, I'm just going to tell you. I don't know. Okay, so anyway, yeah, go ahead. Oh, I'm going to let those guys deal with that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, now that, that's all those other chapters, okay? That's the chapter on the New Testament, you know, how do you, how do you, and, and here, the, the, real quickly, let me say this. The way I handle a lot of those is, uh, is it culturally bound or is it not? Do they give you any, any indication? And in some text, if he's reaching back to Genesis to give you the basis for it, might not be culturally that so. But it's a complicated, your issue is that that's a complicated one. No, I'm not, I'm not going anymore on that. Yeah, <laughs> in the back, yeah. You have another one in the back? Who else? had a question? Is there another one? Yeah, yeah. Okay, sure, say a little louder. Yeah, 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 yeah. So she's really saying Old Testament in general. And I would take you back to that interpretive journey and say absolutely. Jeremiah 29 is the, the example. Uh, you know, I know the plans. I have you plans for good. Uh, and, and, okay, put it in its context. 29 is what? It's a letter to the exiles in Babylon. And if you back up a few verses, what does he say? Settle down, build houses, plant gardens, marry off your kids, you're going to be here 70 years. Okay, that's the plans, okay? <laughs> they want to come home, you know, and so they're hoping for, God tells them there is a future, 
you know, there's, a, there's an immediate future, which is you just get the work settled down where you are now. He's not pulling them out of that. Uh, and then there is an ultimate restoration, but they're not going to see it 70 years down the road. So there is this ultimate deal. So, yeah, I would say be careful with verses like that. You don't want to just go directly, read it. I have a plan for you and assume God's got something great planned to prosper. But, yeah, to go directly, I think, is, is a mistake. But if you go back and put it in its context, I think it's even richer. You know, they're in a tough situation. I got plans for you. Settle down, man. You're where I want you to be. <laughs> you know, uh, and I'll encourage you. I'll strengthen you. I'll be with you. It's what he tells those, you know, those exiles. He says, I'll bless you in Babylon, uh, but I'm not bringing you back to Jerusalem. Uh, and of course, if they go back to Jerusalem right then, there's another battle coming. Everybody in Jerusalem is about to get killed. So if, if he gave them what they wanted and sent them home, they're going to all get killed. So by not sending them home, it's even better. I mean, there's a lot of things you can run with that once you put it in that context. So I would say, what did it mean to them, you know, contextually, then what are the principles? And I think you get more out of it uh, that way. Sorry if I ruined that for you, but <laughs> that first. But, but again, I think, it's, I think it's richer, so...